What I'd like to do, though, is um, I'd like to set the stage uh, for Luke chapter 7 by reading uh, a couple bookend verses. And then what we're going to do is we'll look at Luke 7 as we go through the message this morning, okay? So we'll kind of unpack it together. I won't read the whole thing up front. I want to show you a few bookend verses to start us out, though. And the first one is in Luke chapter 4. So I'd like you to go back to Luke 4. We've been here already. But I'd like you to look in verse number 43. In Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus has been doing miracles in Capernaum. He's been healing people, casting out demons. He's been doing these good, good works in Capernaum. And he... He says this because they want to keep him there. They they want him to be kind of a private prophet. In Luke chapter 4, verse 43, he says this. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. So here, Capernaum wanted to keep keep Jesus all to themselves. And he says, no. I have to go to other towns and preach the good news of the kingdom of God because that's why I was sent here. Now, we've been walking through chapters of Luke and we've seen that after this, after chapter four, Jesus calls his disciples and then there's this rising opposition that begins to happen. People begin to oppose his message. Now, forward over to Luke chapter eight. Yeah, we're not going to touch Luke 8 this morning. That's for next week. But but look at Luke chapter 8, verse number 1. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Do you see these two bookends? Chapter 4. I can't stay here in Capernaum. I have to go preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And then in chapter eight, he's gonna go from village to village. And what is he gonna do? He's gonna proclaim and bring the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, this idea of the kingdom of God is one of these interesting biblical concepts. Sometimes it's called the kingdom of heaven. Other times the kingdom of God. And sometimes it's synonymously referred to as eternal life. You find that in Matthew chapter 19. All three of those terms used interchangeably. And what this does is it creates some confusion about what exactly is this kingdom that Jesus talks about. And you have to realize that even in his crew of 12 apostles, those he brought closest to him, there were likely some various views as to what the kingdom was. Do you remember some of the names of some of the apostles that Jesus called? One of them was named Simon the Zealot. You ever wonder, what is that? Simon the Zealot. He was really ambitious. He was an intense personality. No, that's not what it's saying. When Jesus calls one named Simon the Zealot, it's referring to the fact that he was part of a revolutionary Jewish sect that wanted to overthrow Rome. He was part of this resistance movement that believed that Israel's new regime was gonna come about by force. And so the zealots, I mean, they would carry knives and stab Roman soldiers in the back. The zealots thought, we're gonna overturn this Roman occupation through force 
And that's how the kingdom is going to come about. The zealots thought the kingdom was going to come about like in Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, if you remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it's a dream of a great statue made of these different metals, and a stone comes almost out of nowhere, hits the statue. The statue kind of is demolished, and the stone grows into a mountain, and the mountain covers the earth, and that's called the kingdom. So the zealots thought the way the kingdom is going to come about is this Messiah is going to come like this stone that's going to crush all opposition. So they had no problem using force. You see, even in Jesus' own crew, there were ideas about the kingdom. So you have Simon the Zealot, one of his apostles, who thought that Rome should be overthrown, even through force. But on this same crew of apostles, you have a guy named Matthew, who happened to be what occupation? Anybody remember? a tax collector. He wasn't trying to overthrow Rome. He was working for Rome. He probably thought that if there is a kingdom, it's probably a spiritual and invisible kingdom, which is why he felt okay to work for Rome. I mean, listen, you got the spiritual invisible kingdom over here. We've got Rome and a lot of money over here. Live and let live, you know? Different views of the kingdom. Some thought that the kingdom was this internal state of being. There were philosophers like Philo who taught that the kingdom was this possession of wisdom. If you lived in wisdom, you were part of the kingdom. Others, like the Pharisees, thought that the kingdom could be equated to the religious observance of the Torah. If you could just scrupulously follow the laws and traditions of Israel, then you would bring about the kingdom. Some of you are like, okay, wow, I'm already lost. You just represented four views, presented four views of the kingdom. I'm already lost. Do you know there were at least nine views? Michael Bird has traced at least nine different views of the kingdom that were circulating in the first century. And if you're confused, join the crowd. Because do you realize when we encounter our text in Luke chapter 7, we're going to find out that John the Baptist was confused. I mean, there were these different ideas of the kingdom, and John the Baptist in Luke chapter 7 is not quite sure what's going on. He's confused about Jesus and Jesus' approach to the kingdom. In our text, we find John the Baptist, he's pondering what Jesus is doing, because Jesus doesn't seem to be like a stone that's crushing all other nations, Jesus is going around healing people. He's like on this mission of doing good. He's helping people, casting out demons, healing diseases. That doesn't sound like the kingdom, at least not to John the Baptist. Notice verse number 18. Take a look at Luke chapter 7, verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. What, what things? Well, that Jesus was healing, <laughs> that Jesus is doing good. He's casting out demons. He's helping people. The disciples of John reported all these things to him because John's in prison at this time. And John, look at the text, John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come? 
or shall we look for another? In other words, are you the king we've been waiting for? Are you the promised Messiah or should we look elsewhere? Now, some people, when they hit this text, they're a little confused because they're like, I thought John the Baptist was the one who baptized Jesus. I thought John the Baptist was the one who said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How does he get to this spot where he's like, Jesus, are you the one we've been waiting for or should we go elsewhere? How did he get to that spot? Well, it's because he's looking at what Jesus is doing and it doesn't match up to what he thinks should happen with the coming kingdom. John the Baptist had a different expectation about how the kingdom would come about. Listen, and and I want you to see, I want to read a little bit of John the Baptist's preaching, okay? And I want you to see if you can catch his idea of the kingdom. I gave a few different ideas of the kingdom early on. But I want you to see, can you catch his vibe? Can can you grasp his tone? How did John the Baptist think the kingdom was going to come about? This comes from Luke chapter 3, verses 7, 9, 16, 17. I'm just going to read a few passages from John the Baptist's preaching. Listen to his sermon. John said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of Vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff, he will burn with unquenchable fire. I mean, you've heard of hellfire and brimstone preachers? I mean, it was John the Baptist, Right? I mean, did you catch his vibe? I mean, how does he think this kingdom is going to come about? What does he expect from the Messiah? He expects the Messiah to come with a winnowing fork and just start chopping things down. He expects the Messiah to come and take all the chaff and throw it into the fire. He expects someone mighty. He expects fury. He expects to hear Jesus say, my armies are assembling even as we speak. He expects to hear Jesus say, the fury of God is on the march. But instead, he hears reports about Jesus that he's extending mercy and grace to people. And that's what confused John the Baptist. Instead of doom and damnation, the first thing I want you to see in this text is that Jesus brings Good news of the kingdom. That's what Jesus brings. He's not bringing fury and wrath. He's bringing good news of the kingdom. And that's what unfolds here in this opening of the text. John is expecting the coming one to arrive as judge. And Jesus explains that he must first come as savior. John's expecting a message of destruction, 
but Jesus is going to bring good news of salvation. Now, I think it's important for us at this point to realize that John was not wrong on the facts. He was just wrong on the timing. You see, you see the Messiah will come and bring God's judgment. That will happen, but not in the first coming. That's in the second coming. In this first coming, Jesus isn't bringing judgment. He's going to be judged in our place. Instead, he's going to inaugurate a time of amnesty and healing and forgiveness. Don't you remember the Nazareth sermon? This is from Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. Jesus stands up in the Nazareth synagogue. He's given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He unrolls the scroll and he personalizes Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. Jesus opens the scroll and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, it is interesting. Some of you, when we studied Luke chapter 4 and that particular quote, some of you looked back at what Jesus was quoting. He's quoting out of Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And interestingly, Jesus stops the quote early. Did any of you catch that back when we looked at it? Jesus ends the quote. He's reading here. He ends the quote with, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus stops. Do you know what the next line is in Isaiah, the, the scroll he's reading? The next line is this. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. He doesn't quote that part. No, John the Baptist was expecting the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus was saying, no, in this first one, I'm here in my first coming to declare the year of the Lord's favor. That comes first. Jesus brings good news of the kingdom. So when John the Baptist sends messengers to Jesus in verse number 20, asking, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Jesus answers the question, but he does it with actions. So imagine this, John the Baptist is in jail. He's seen Jesus do all these good things. It doesn't look like the fury and wrath that he expects from the Messiah. That's not what I thought would happen when the kingdom comes. So he sends two of his messengers, go ask Jesus if he's the one or if we should be looking for another. And so they go, Jesus, are you the one or should we be looking for someone else? And Jesus says, come here. And you almost can imagine him bringing them close. He goes among this crowd and he answers their questions by doing a few things. Look in verse 21. Are you the one or should we look for another? In that hour, verse 21, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news 
preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What happens here in this text is that Jesus performs these miracles in front of these messengers from John. And then he quotes a smattering of messianic texts kind of squished all together from Isaiah. He says to them, go tell John, basically this, go tell John to remember what the prophet Isaiah said about the kingdom. Like in Isaiah 61.1, good news is going to go to the poor. Or Isaiah 29.18, the deaf will hear and the blind will see. Or Isaiah 35, verse 6, the lame will walk. In other words, go and tell John that this Messiah is dealing with humanity's greatest enemies. Not not Rome. This Messiah is doing something that no one else can do. And what is that? Well, Jesus is defeating the evils that spoil human life. Jesus is defeating the sin that scars our souls. Jesus is reversing the curse that looms like a shadow over all of humanity. These are the enemies that Jesus is crushing under his feet. He's bringing order to chaos. He's he's replacing misery with joy. He's filling the void of despair in people's hearts. He's filling it with hope. And he tells these messengers, go back. And tell John what you've seen. This is good news. This is good news of the kingdom. Now, I don't know if any of you remember this thing called a pandemic that happened a few years ago. Most of us would like to block that out of our memories. It's like a blip, you know. I went to the pharmacy just yesterday and they had an old sign still up about COVID-19. You know, it just gave me a bad feeling inside. Just, Just didn't want to think of it. I don't want to take that path down memory lane, but I'm going to take you down there this morning. (laughs) Do you remember when we were all cooped up and sectioned off, isolated, afraid? All of life seemed to be upended. We were unsure if things would go back to normal. Every single time you turned on the news, You were inundated with horror stories about inadequate medical supplies or rising infection rates or terrible death tolls. It seemed like all we got was bad news. I don't know about you, but it felt like, man, this is depressing. (laughs) I feel a little despairing. And then this guy named John Krasinski, he launched something called SGN. I don't know if you heard about it, S-G-N. He was, uh, he was tired of all the bad news. And so he started this YouTube channel and it got, I mean, very quickly, got 2.43 million subscribers. Some of his episodes had up to 18 million views. What was it? S-G-N. Well, this was the tagline. The news show dedicated entirely to good news. It was all about these good news stories across the world. When when it seemed like every other broadcast was about brokenness, frailty, death, SGN stood for some good news. Because he felt like people just need some good news. Do you realize that when Jesus was going about, there was brokenness and death 
and disease all around him. And instead of bringing wrath and fury, in his first coming, he brought some good news. It was the good news of the kingdom. That's what we see in, 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 in chapter 8, verse 1. Soon afterward, Jesus went through these cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom. My friends, the gospel message is good news. It's the, it's the news that there is a loving king who's coming to liberate captives, care for the needy, reverse the curse, redeem sinners. It's the good news of the kingdom. And that's what Jesus was bringing. He was bringing healing to the nations. But I want you to notice as this text unfolds, not just what is it that Jesus brought? Jesus brought good news of the kingdom. But who did he bring it to? Sometimes this is very interesting for us. When we read the gospels to look at, you've got all these people all over the place. Who is it that Jesus goes to? Who does he spend time with? Who does he sit with and, and eat with? Who does he bring it to? And so the next thing I want you to see in this text is not just that Jesus brings good news of the kingdom, but Jesus brings good news to the poor. We're shocked to find out that the Messiah is focused on outcasts, those who are ostracized, those who are marginalized. And in Luke chapter 7, what we get are these three different accounts of the way that Jesus brings good news to the poor. That's what he said he was going to do. I'm going to go and proclaim the good news of the kingdom to the poor. And he does it here in this uh, chapter. Now, you have to remember that the poor, as we learned last week with the, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You have to remember that in Judaism, the poor wasn't just an economic state. There were spiritual overtones. When you were poor, you were someone who was desperate. You were someone who had nowhere else to turn. You had no other resources to tap into. You had to look to God. And so Jesus is bringing good news to the poor, those who had nowhere else to go, no one else to turn to, no other resources to tap. He brings good news to people like that. To start out in the chapter, it's to a Gentile soldier. We see that in verses 1 through 10. Take a look at Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, and notice how the good news of the kingdom, Christ's kingship, breaks into the life of this Gentile centurion. Verse number one, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, he was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he's the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. 
And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this. And he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. We discover in this passage that the centurion has this beloved servant who's deathly ill. And the centurion here, this Gentile soldier, is a little bit unusual. I mean, to the average Jewish reader, this would stand out as somewhat strange. I say that because first, he cares about his servant, which may have been strange at that time. There are records from the period. Now, I'm sure that there were masters who cared for their servants. In general, servants were used as tools, however. There's a record from that period where a Roman author recommends that a farmer examine his implements every year and throw out the ones that are old and broken. And he goes on and says this, and do the same with your slaves. You think, well, how did they, how did they think about their servants? Well, they thought about them like tools that could be used and then thrown away. But not this centurion. This centurion uh, deeply cares about his servant. That's one thing that's unusual about this. Another thing that's unusual, however, in this, in this text is that this Gentile centurion seems to be very religious. Did, did you pick that up? He supports the Jews in Capernaum to such a degree that he paid for the building of the synagogue. He paid for the worship center for these Jews in Capernaum. Now, that's not something that you would see every day across the Roman empire. So he loves the Jewish people. He cares deeply for his slaves, but he's faced with this problem that he can't solve. This beloved servant is deathly ill and he has nowhere else to turn. And so in verse number three, we see that he hears about Jesus. Thinking that this Jewish rabbi might listen to people from his own nation the centurion sends the elders, the Jewish elders, to ask if Jesus would heal his servant. It's interesting here that the centurion believes certain things about Jesus. We see that the centurion believes he's Lord. Notice he calls Jesus Lord in verse number six. We also see that the centurion believes that Jesus has command authority over sickness. What do I mean by command authority? This centurion believed that just like he could command a lower ranked officer, like go do this, and, and that officer would obey, the centurion believed that Jesus could say to illness, be gone, and it would be gone. Now, I love the fact that we got a bunch of people here, people of faith. We've gathered on Sunday. We've sung songs of our faith. People of faith. Do you really believe that Jesus has command authority over things like sickness or things like death, disease? I mean, this centurion, this, this should shock us. He's a Gentile soldier. And that's why Jesus highlights it. He's like, I haven't seen such faith in all of Israel. He believes that Jesus can just say, be gone. And that sickness would go. 
This centurion, he believes that there could be a divine fiat, like Jesus could just say it and it could happen. I just wonder what sort of things in your life you think are so beyond resolution that you haven't even prayed about them. Well, this is, what, this is, this is just the conclusion. The, it is how it is. The doctors have said it. My boss has declared it. This is the way it is. And you don't even pray about it. And in doing so, you betray such small faith. Friends, do we really have the faith to trust a God who can just say it? I mean, he may or may not choose to. I don't know. But this centurion believed, you don't even have to come to my house. You don't have to put your hand on it. You don't have to do any of that. You can just say it. And it will be so. The centurion believed certain things about Jesus, that he was Lord over all. The centurion believed certain things about himself. Did you catch this when I read? The Jewish elders come up to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, this centurion has a sick servant and you should definitely heal him because this centurion is worthy. Did you catch that? He's worthy. I mean, he loves the Jewish nation. And, and look, I mean, he's built our synagogue. He's worthy of a favor. Could you do something for him? And all it says in our text is that Jesus goes with them. And so Jesus starts walking towards this guy's house. The centurion hears that Jesus is coming. And he says to some of his friends, go tell him to stop. And do you remember what the friends relay? Go tell him to stop because I'm not worthy to have him come to my house. The centurion believed certain things about Jesus, that he was Lord over all. He had command authority even over sickness. But the centurion believed certain things about himself. And that was, he wasn't going to get a favor from Jesus because he had some self-worth, because he had some merits to throw down on the table. Yeah, look what I've done. Yeah. So you should do something for me. Let's trade here, Jesus. No, he didn't do that. He said, I am not worthy. Friends, beware of any religion that seeks to build up your worth to somehow get something from God. The divine economy doesn't work that way. You're not going to get something from God because you're worthy. It's only when you realize you're unworthy that you can be a recipient of his grace. My friends, God resists the proud, the worthy, he gives grace to the humble, the unworthy. This centurion had an accurate self-assessment. Verse six, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy. Here in this text, the Lord over all, Jesus. Verse number nine, when he heard these things, he marveled. Turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, look at verse nine, I, t- I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such This is an interesting account that Luke includes because he makes a Gentile the model of faith. It's almost as bad as making a Samaritan the model of a good neighbor, you know, (laughs) like the audacity to use people like that as models. But that's what he does here. He uses an unworthy Gentile soldier to be a model of faith. And I think that should cause us to stop and think about faith for a minute. Faith is not merely a religious word. It's not an abstract belief about God. 
It's not simply learning church dogma. Faith is a simple, clear confidence that when Jesus commands something to be done, it will be done. Faith is not wishful thinking. It is an exercise in reality. I want you to pause and really contemplate faith this morning. Faith is not a leap in the dark. Faith is your first step into the light. It's seeing what is really there. Isn't that what the centurion did? He saw what was really there. He saw Jesus and he knew this is the Lord of heaven and earth. He can say it and my servant can be healed. He had faith. He believed what was true about Jesus. Now, back in the day, I want to know, let's just do a raise of hands to point out all the old people in the room, all right? <laughs> How many of you remember the 90s? All right, come on, raise your hand with me. All right, yeah, amen, the 90s. Tight roll your pants, those big puffy bangs, you know? I mean, all right, you, you remember the 90s. And if you remember the 90s, then you, you remember this phenomenon. It was very short-lived, but it, it spread across the nation. They were called magic eye posters, and they were these optical illusions that could be found everywhere. They were in mall kiosks. People used to go to the mall. Um, they didn't shop on Amazon. We didn't have that. Uh, we went to the mall. So you, you'd see these in mall kiosks, gift stores. Uh, you'd see them on coffee tables. They even printed them on postcards. They were magic eye posters. So they had these books, so magic eye books that you would find in, in different places. The tagline was this. A new way of looking at the world. They were selling out, like they, they published a book of magic eye uh, pictures. They sold out 20 million copies. I mean, people all over were buying these things. They were, they were, they were amazed by what was going on. And you would see people looking at these hyper-colorized digital uh, pictures and they would be exclaiming that they saw things. Okay, let's do another poll. How many of you were able to see a 3D picture in one of those? All right, okay. And you remember, like you go to a mall, and you would remember there would be people with their hands on their hips. <laughs> and they'd be looking at the poster like this. And sometimes their eyes would be crossed, and they'd move their head in and out. And there were these little crowds around these things. Now, there would always be these people who were naysayers. You know, they were, I call them the hoity-toities, the frustrated quitters. <laughs> and they would claim that there's nothing there. But all of us, all of us who focused correctly, we knew the truth. There really was something there. And it was almost like this three-dimensional thing would kind of pop out of the page. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. My friends, exercising faith is a little like seeing those 3D images in a magic eye poster. It's not a display of an overactive imagination. It's the ability to see reality. And that's what was going on with the centurion. He was able to see Jesus as he was, the Lord of heaven and earth, the one who was breaking in with a kingdom of good news. Jesus brings good news to the poor, people who are unworthy, like a, like a Gentile soldier.
But the text continues, gives us another example of this inbreaking of the kingdom, Jesus bringing good news to the poor. And the second story is about someone else who receives the good news. It's a grieving widow. And we see this in verses 11 through 17. Take a look at this little account of, of a woman who has, who has experienced tremendous loss. Look at Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a, a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding uh, country. In this section, we discover a poor woman who has not only lost her husband, but she's lost her only son as well. I mean, this is a, this is a pitiful scene. And, and when we encounter this, this story, we're supposed to see some parallels, okay? You're supposed to see some parallels uh, with Elijah. Do you remember when Elijah raised a widow's son who had died? We're supposed to see some parallels there. Uh, we're supposed to see some connection, perhaps, between this scene and a later one where Jesus himself is going to be carried off and his widowed mother watches as he's entombed for burial. There's a, there's a lot going on in this story. But interestingly, this woman remains a stranger to us. We don't know her name. We don't know anything about her. She's just a widow who has lost her only son. And I want you to realize that some of that anonymity helps us understand how women like that were treated in a society like that. In other words, they were like the bottom rung. They, they had no one to work. They had no one to supply for them. They had no one to care for them. They, they, they had nothing. There was no social security check that was gonna come in the mail each month for her. There was nothing. She was a nobody. She was poor. She was at the bottom rung. And Jesus is passing by. And he looks on this desperate state of affairs. He looks on this woman who's extremely poor. I want you to imagine the scene. Like, okay, what would it be like? Well, they would have had professional mourners and wailers out in front making plenty of noise. And that was so that the family and friends could grieve without embarrassment. Yeah, have, you ever, have you ever really wept? Like uncontrollably grieved? And you're almost embarrassed because you, you're, you can't control your emotions in that moment. And it's, it's, like, it's like a terrible loss. And so in that culture, they would have professional mourners 
wailers who would go out in front and they would make this noise. There would be flutes and cymbals and people crying and yelling. And it was to create some sort of a penumbra of noise so that the family wouldn't be so embarrassed in their grief. You have to realize that this was a fresh death. They didn't embalm bodies. It wasn't three weeks later. It was sitting in the morgue for a while. No, this happened usually within 24 hours. Here was a mother who was reeling. It was less than a day ago her son was alive, and now he's dead. Her husband had already passed away, and now her only son is dead, and people are grieving. There are these shrill cries of grief, tears, sorrow, fill the air. And then there's this wickerwork basket. That's what they would have done. They would have woven this stuff together, and it was a way to carry the body for burial. And so you can see some of these bearers are carrying this wickerwork basket along, and there's all of this noise, and this woman is just crying. Now, when you, when you come across this story, it should cause us to stop and think a little bit about the pain of death. I was reading about a man named Joe and Mary Lou Bailey. They tragically suffered the loss of three sons. One at 18 days old after a surgery. Another one died at five years old after losing the battle with leukemia. Another son died at 18 years old in a sledding accident. Joe and Mary Lou knew something about the death of a child. Joe wrote this. Of all deaths, that of a child is most unnatural and hardest to bear. He said in Carl Jung's words, it is a period placed before the end of the sentence. Sometimes when the sentence has hardly begun. We expect the old to die. The, the separation is always difficult, but it, it comes as no surprise. But the child, the youth, life lies ahead with all of its beauty, its wonder, its potential. Death is a cruel thief when it strikes the young. Here in our text, here's this mother, this widow. She lost her only son. She lost her husband. There's nothing left. But what breaks through is this, this glimmer of hope. I love how one author put it. In every pang that rends the heart, the man of sorrows has a part. In other words, he doesn't just leave us there in our pain. The man of sorrows meets us in our pain. What's fascinating about this little story is whereas the Gentile soldier had great faith and Jesus highlights it. Do you realize in this story that's not highlighted at all? The only thing that's highlighted in this story is Jesus' compassion. In other words, it's not because this widow had great faith that Jesus comes to her and says, now I'm gonna do something great for you. Instead, it's because Jesus had great compassion that he met this woman on her darkest day. He comes up to her in verse number 13. And I, I don't know, you got this funeral procession, people wailing and crying, flutes, cymbals, tears, dust thrown in the air, this wickerwork basket carrying this corpse. And then there's this, this little crew of men start coming 
up near. They're strangers. Like, who is this guy that's coming up near this funeral procession? It'd be, like, it'd be like you're at a cemetery and all of a sudden, here's a crew of like 13, 15 people. They just start moving towards your group and you're wondering, what are they doing? I don't know these people. And Jesus is leading the way and he comes right up next to this woman. And this is what I imagine, verse, verse 13. He whispers in her ear. Do you see the two words? Don't weep. Perhaps she doesn't know why she should believe this stranger. Perhaps she does. Jesus moves next to the corpse. He touches the funeral bier. Look at verse 14. Young man, I say to you, arise. And in verse 15, the dead man sat up. He began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. People start cheering in amazement. Verse 16, a great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. And they were partially right. God had visited his people, but Jesus was more than a great prophet. He was the son of God. Jesus showed up. He brought good news to the poor, to a Gentile soldier, a grieving widow, and there's one last story here. Jesus brings good news to the poor. The last story is is about a poor, sinful prostitute. It's the end of chapter seven. We find this account in verses 36 through 50. Jesus' kingship comes on the scene with this woman who everyone despises. Verse 36, one of the Pharisees, and we should all say, boo. (laughs) One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house. It's like this repetition of Pharisee, Pharisee, Pharisee. Just pick it up, all right? One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. And this is like a euphemistic way of saying she was a prostitute. A woman of the city who was a sinner, a prostitute. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, the Pharisee who had invited him saw this. And he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, and and this this is Simon, he's just thinking this in his head, you know, if this man were a prophet, He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. Isn't it funny? You're in Jesus' presence and you have these personal thoughts and they're not personal, you know? (laughs) Jesus looks at him, a money, Simon, Can I say something to you? Sure, say it. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Well, Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Now, pause for a second. 
This has been going on. They're reclining at table. That's how they would have uh, eaten. They would have reclined. Their feet would have been behind them, leaning on pillows, low table. And this woman comes in, and she's just weeping. And she's making a mess. I mean, I want you to think like mascara run in. I mean, it's just, a, it's one of those, you know. And tears, everywhere. And they're dripping on his feet, and she doesn't have anything to wipe it off with. So she just unpins her hair, lets her hair down. <gasps> that would have been a terrible thing. No, no dignified woman would ever do that in that culture. But she doesn't have anything to wipe his feet. She undoes her hair and uses her hair and wipes his feet. But the more she's wiping his feet, like the more tears are falling on it. I mean, what is she to do? And she takes this little flask of ointment and drips it on his, on his feet. And what's interesting in this account, did you notice Jesus has not yet acknowledged her? It's fascinating. He's, he's sitting there. He's got, the, he's got the uppity crust, Simon, the proud Pharisee, supposedly hosting him. He's a stinky host, but supposedly hosting him, thinking all of these naughty thoughts in his head that he doesn't know that Jesus can read his thinking. But Jesus doesn't acknowledge this woman. And and what's interesting is the first recognition she gets is, is an indirect reference. Jesus looks at Simon, verse 44, turning towards the woman. Again, he doesn't even talk to her. He just turns towards her, but says to Simon, do you see this woman? Now, the reason it's a fascinating question is because she had already been dissected by Simon. He had already come to all of his conclusions about this woman. He only saw her for who she was, not who she is. He couldn't see who she, who she was right in that moment. He could only see her past. And Jesus kind of just pokes him a little bit here. Do you see this woman? Because Simon's been thinking all along, if he knew who this woman was, he knew she was a prostitute, he would have nothing to do with her. Do you see this woman, Simon? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time uh, I came, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. She loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. I mean, imagine hearing those words from Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. Some of you have probably come with some baggage of sin this morning. And what Jesus wants you to hear is your sins are forgiven. Those who were at table began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now this is a, another fascinating story. In the opening two sentences, Simon is called a Pharisee three times. And in true Pharisaic form, he's concerned about being separate from sinful people. Observant of all the religious regulations, and he cares more about outward appearances than inward realities. 
Simon in this story, this Pharisee, is not a follower of Jesus. Perhaps he hosts this meal simply to confirm his own suspicions that this up-and-coming rabbi is a farce. We don't know why he invited Jesus over, but he's not a follower. He does call Jesus teacher, verse 40. Did you catch that? But he has no posture of respect. Instead, he treats Jesus with ambivalence. He offers him no water. Uh, he, he doesn't anoint his head. He doesn't give him the customary greeting of welcome when he comes into the house. Simon was not convinced at all that the hype surrounding Jesus was merited. So when we read this story, we see Simon as this rude host. But in stark contrast, we have an uninvited guest, this woman who comes. She wasn't invited to the dinner, but she shows up there, and she's just overflowing with adoration towards Jesus a woman of the city, a sinner, a prostitute. Simon thinks to himself, what is she doing here? He can't stand her presence, but he can't see his own need. So Jesus does that, that little parable of two debtors. One own, owes almost two years' wages. The other one only owes two months' wages. And it's obviously, I mean, this little parable is obviously about the prostitute and the Pharisee. She was a 500 denarii sinner. He was maybe a 50 denarii sinner, at least by outward appearances. She was dirty and defiled. He was separate. He was sanctimonious. But Jesus is saying this, they were both sinners. They're both guilty. They both need forgiveness. The high-class moralist had the same problem as the low-class prostitute. Both the rebel and the religious need a savior. That's what he's trying to show here. Simon the Pharisee, he couldn't think of anyone except himself. This prostitute, she had forgotten everyone except for Jesus. I just think you should pause at that meal and see a beautiful picture of worship. You really should. If you come here like a Pharisee, you're worried about what everybody else thinks. You're worried about, I wonder, I wonder what they think about me. I wonder what their perception of me is about. I wonder if they like me. I wonder if they accept me. You're worried about everybody else's perception. A true worshiper has forgotten everybody else and only sees Jesus. I mean, she's just there with adoration and tears and joy. Why? Well, because she's been forgiven. The self-righteous have no need of a savior. The sinner can't think of anything else but the beauty of being forgiven. One author put it this way, the greatest of sins is to be conscious of no sins. And that was the state of Simon. The woman, however, she was deeply aware of her own transgressions. She needed Jesus. And he says, your sins, verse 48, are forgiven. So here in this final account, we see Jesus brings good news to the poor. He brings good news to, to this, this Gentile uh, centurion. He brings good news to this grieving widow. He brings good news to the sinful prostitute, healing for the sick, life for the dead, forgiveness for sinners. He brings good news but he brings good news so that it will be received. You see, this last story is placed intentionally 
at the end because we get a contrast here. We get someone who receives the good news, the prostitute, and we get someone who rejects the good news, the Pharisee. Jesus brings good news of the kingdom to the poor so that it will be received. And that's the last thing I want you to see in this text. When we look at these unlikely candidates, these outsiders, the Gentile, the widow, the prostitute, it's almost as if we're learning about an upside-down kingdom. We're learning about a rule of reversals. It's almost like the first will be last and the last will be first. It's almost as if if you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for him, that's where you save it. Jesus' kingdom plan is different from what John the Baptist expected. It's a far cry from what Simon the Pharisee wanted. Jesus brought good news to the unworthy, the poor, and the shameful. It was the year of the Lord's favor. And he says in verse number 23, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, blessed is the one who receives my grace. Blessed is the one who receives the gift of salvation. Blessed is the one who has been forgiven much. Blessed is the one who enjoys the joy of pardon. That's the good news that Jesus brings. In 1830, there was a man named George Wilson. He was arrested for male theft. The penalty at the time for that sort of a crime was hanging. While Wilson waited in jail, President Andrew Jackson intervened and gave him a presidential pardon. But to everyone's surprise, George Wilson refused to accept it. The authorities then didn't know what to do. Should Wilson be freed or should he be hanged? So they consulted the Chief Justice, John Marshall, who handed down this decision. A pardon is a slip of paper, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused, it is no pardon at all. George Wilson must be hanged. I think here in our text, Jesus brings the good news of pardon. The good news of the kingdom to the poor. He offers healing, life, and forgiveness. But it must be received or it's no pardon at all. So may the Lord help us to come to terms with our own sin, our own desperate need for a savior. And may he stir our hearts to believe in the son and receive his grace today.